Afghanistan in a downward spiral as the Taliban make their claim on the country in the midst of a failed withdrawal from uh, the U.S. So much to unpack uh, on this topic today, including how we got here, what went wrong, what could have been done differently, how could this have been prevented. We will also discuss what this means for our national security and other jihadi elements in the region. Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. Today we're joined by my good friend and colleague, the sharpest and best informed Middle East analyst, in my opinion, and I'm sure many others, author and commentator, Dr. Walid Ferris. Dr. Ferris is co-secretary of the Transatlantic Parliamentary Group and former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump, He's the author of several informative books on the region, including Future Jihad, The War of Ideas, Winning the War Against Future Jihad, The Coming Revolution, The Lost Spring, and of course, his latest book, The Choice, which compares the foreign policies of Trump versus Obama and Biden. Dr. Walid, it's my utmost pleasure to welcome you to the show again. Lisa, thank you again for inviting me, especially in these very difficult moments. But also, thank you for what you do, uh, informing the American public, educating those who are interested in, in, in conflict and U.S. foreign policy. And I would like to thank also the staff uh, of your team. Thank you. And, uh, we're, we're so excited to have you, particularly today. I think there's nobody better uh, to really, really make sense of what's going on. I know the American people are very upset, confused, with a lot of, of questions on, you know, what happened. Um, Initially, I want to start out getting your assessment of what's happening on the ground right now in Afghanistan. From today, and it is evolving, Lisa, as you know, from the last few days, uh, the benchmark has been the fall of Kabul, let's say the fall or the toppling of the government of Afghanistan and the control by the Taliban of Kabul, of many other cities. Uh, so what's happening right now is that the Taliban are securing their full control over the country, not just the capital in major cities, but also towns. And what is happening, and we don't see it, or most of the international community is not paying enough attention to, is that the Taliban are also taking the control of the entire international border around Afghanistan. Those who control the border will be able to shut down the country, do whatever they want inside the country, go after whomever they want inside the country, and then be in control financially of all these points of crossing between Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Central Asia, China, uh, and of course the pro-Russian republics in the north. So there is a, so much happening right now, but if you want to summarize it, Lisa, I would say the Taliban are digesting Afghanistan. And once they reach that strategic digestion, then everything we're hearing from them, those uh, nice uh, statements made by some of their uh, press release and spokespersons, that would be from the past. Then there'll be the return to the Taliban of 1996 till 2001. Speaking of of those dates, um, you know, I think it's important to put into context what what's going on, right? Um, you wrote a piece uh, in 2019, actually, um, two years ago exactly, uh, for the Sunday Guardian Live, predicting and warning that this exact scenario may play out if the uh, U.S. doesn't play its cards right. I'm going to 
uh, post this piece on on all our social media accounts after the show so uh, the audience can can take a look because I think it's extremely informative and it's from two years ago. Um, but what it does so well is the piece outlines the entire lifespan of our 20 years in Afghanistan from Genesis to uh, a potential departure. Uh, before we go on, can you give us, you know, a, a brief timeline of what happened in Afghanistan? You know, why did we go in? What was done? And how did the mission change over time? Well, first of all, Lisa, from a historic perspective, Afghanistan was already at war when we went in. So it's, no, it's not a peaceful, stable country. It was already being uh, devoured by the same Taliban who actually, to just put it in perspective, fought over Afghanistan from about 1990 one till 1996. So all really began with the collapse of the Soviets. It was Afghanistan was a battlefield between the United States and the West and the Soviet Union. The Soviets occupied Afghanistan. There was a resistance of Mujahideen. That's different from jihadists, but some jihadists were Mujahideen. And we have back the Mujahideen who, among others, had support from the Muslim Brotherhood. So the configuration during the Cold War was that the U.S. and Islamic fundamentalists were working together against the Marxists, the Communists, and the Soviet Union. That ended when the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan. But when they withdrew from Afghanistan, our interests lowered and we just quit. And what happened then is that the jihadists among those Mujahideen, namely uh, the Taliban, who started as a movement inspired by Salafi-like uh, uh, organizations out of Pakistan and northern India, uh, they advanced. So the same Taliban that we see today, Lisa, are the uh, the extension of the Taliban uh, jihadists. And then they fought against uh, forces that we're going to see soon. You and I will talk about what, what, what lays ahead of us, the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance are uh, forces, ethnic and uh, religious minorities in the north of Afghanistan who did not want to succumb to the Taliban. We may see this again in the next uh, weeks and months. Uh, so there was, go ahead. There was, there was a, uh, a a war led by the jihadi Taliban, and they they controlled eighty percent of Afghanistan and a status quo. But what the Taliban have done that drew us in that conflict to remind those um, you know who, who have not uh, been observing this before is that the Taliban became connected to an international jihadi organization, and that's Al Qaeda. So they gave uh, protection to Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda plotted out of Afghanistan to attack us in several places. First in uh, East Africa, then in Yemen, and then of course the big one came in, on 9-11 when they caused the death of thousands of Americans. It, as a result of that, this is where the US campaign against terror started. We all lived those, uh, those events. We went to Afghanistan not because this was an imperialist, colonialist enterprise. This was to defend ourselves. It's like when Japan attacked us, we kept pushing till we got to, uh, to Japan and demanded surrender. So now the big question, and I'll stop here to have some uh, back and forth with you. Uh, what was the goal of that campaign, the US campaign, which was very short. I mean, about 40 days, we brought down the Taliban and then we installed friends, Northern Alliance and others. So what was after that? And this is going to link to what the president and his national security, I'm talking about President Biden and his national security, Sullivan, said yesterday on TV, and I responded to that. They said, well, this was a civil war. No, it was an American 
plus allies, war and campaign against the jihadi terrorists. That was what it was. And it was recognized by the Bush administration, even by the Obama administration for eight years, by the Trump administration. And the first five months of the Biden administration, it's only a few weeks ago, that something happened and they changed their mind and they changed their literature. So basically, we did that campaign to sustain in Afghanistan a local force, which is the Afghani government, many governments, Afghani armed forces. And guess what, Lisa, I'm just digressing, but that's important to remember that now there are some criticism against the Afghani forces. Okay, accept it. We can have criticism against our allies, other allies, but for 20 years or 19 years at least, if you read statements and uh, testimonies in Congress by both parties, by all these administrations, they were praising the Afghan forces. They were sending them money, earmarking budget after budget because they were fighting with us, shoulder to shoulder against the Taliban for all these years. Then what I think went wrong for the 20 years, which we could discuss, is we were not able to achieve the second goal. And the second goal was to empower Afghanistan to become able by itself to fight, by itself and with our help, but by itself to continue to fight the Taliban and then secure a country like post-Nazi Germany was able to do, or post-fascist um, you Italy was able to do, or Japan was able to do. That is where the real debate should have been, but that has nothing to do with the change of direction that the uh, Biden administration did over the past 24 to 72 hours. I mean, there are so many questions, right? Um, you're doing a, a wonderful job at really um, giving us a, a wonderful synopsis uh, as, as to what happened in, in 20 years. But I guess my first uh, reaction to what you say is, why did this go the wrong way? Why did we lose sight of why we're there? Why wasn't the second part of this uh, mission uh, not fulfilled? Um, and I guess ultimately, did we surrender Afghanistan? Did we serve it up to the Taliban on a silver platter? I mean, what? how did we lead ourselves to this ultimate conclusion to withdraw without any strategy? I think, Lisa, your question, my answer in our debate now, our conversation, may I say, is going to be a the genesis of so many conversations that are going to be taking place. So many testimonies I can see coming in debates in Congress. We have two uh, elections coming, one in the midterm, one in the presidential election. So this is not going to be forgotten in 24 hours. This is the beginning of a conversation that would go over, as you did and I did, 20 years. But certainly, certainly, we'd have to cover the reason for what have we done. I mean, what have we done in the 19 years and a half? And then what have we done in the last three months? These are two very important matters to address. So I will, I will leave our, uh, or I will introduce uh, some facts and some realities to our audience, to your audience, and then we could, we could go deeper. The goal initially of the previous administrations, that would be from, from, from Biden to, to Bush, should have been to help Afghan society equip itself with a resistance, with resistance tools. And those tools should have been education, changing the educational system in Afghanistan. Should have been um, working with social forces that are so crucial for a political change and ideological change. And those were responsible for being able to stop the return of the Taliban. And these are women. That's why the battle really is about Afghan women right now. Why? 
because the first component are the mothers. They are the first contact with the kids, right? From zero to five. This is what they, this is what they do, basically, the mothers in that sense. Uh, have we done a good job, first of all, in dealing with teachers? There are 19, 20,000, maybe more teachers across Afghanistan who are in touch with the children at school. And I'll explain why this is important from what, from nine to four and from their age four to, uh, to 14, 15. And why is that important? Because this is where the Taliban actually begins. That's where they begin. Their name is Taliban. Talib is students. So if we don't do the fight to de-radicalize or to shield those youth from the teaching of the Taliban, from this indoctrination, we, we lose the war. And that's what happened, basically. We lost the war because they <clears throat> did not allow the United States and its allies to shield this society from the teaching of the radicals, as we did in Germany. In Germany, the first thing we did after the occupation was to make sure that the schools are not re-radicalized by the National Socialists, the Nazis, or the Fascists. This is where we, where, where we lost the, the war of ideas. Now, there are reasons for that. We can come back to it. Number two, to work with social forces, that's women, for example, because moms can have a huge influence on the minds of these little kids. If you shield and protect those kids at home first, then at school, you, you have a very protected society that you cannot radicalize. The problem is that the Taliban kept their schools, kept their ideological structure. And we were forbidden from doing this. Now you're gonna ask me the next question, by whom? Well, that is going to open the big window for the American public. That is, our military did their job. There is not one single battle in Afghanistan over 20 years that was lost by the United States, not one. And anywhere around the world since Vietnam, basically. So what, where we lost is in Washington, where the lobbies, the Islamist lobbies, well, of course, you have the Iran lobby, but you have the Muslim Brotherhood lobby. They did everything they could under Bush, under Obama, under Trump, including, and of course, the first few months of, uh, of the Biden administration to stop any effort first by the military. And I was part of these conversation, conversations by the media, by our funded media and others to respond to the jihadist ideology. They created the concept of Oh, you are meddling with those cultures. Oh, you are being Islamophobic. Remember, for many, many years, all of this was to stop us from helping in creating the intellectual, mental revolution that would have allowed Afghanistan to shield itself from radicalization. That's only one of the various chapters. Um, let's go to now the, the uh, withdrawal. Um, you know, let, let's back up even a drop more. Did you support withdrawing U.S. forces from Afghanistan, A? B, um, why, why did the Biden administration have no plan? Not, not even, I mean, the, the, you still had Americans on the ground before the Taliban reached Kabul. Um, how did this happen? Lisa, for the first question, that's very important. Uh, I published many books, as you know, uh, and two of these books, Future Jihad and The War of Ideas, Future Jihad in 2005, The War of Ideas in 2007. We were still under the Bush administration. I was calling for a withdrawal, the beginning of a withdrawal in the first seven years, not in the last two of the 20th, 20 years. My point was, we went in, 
we defeated the Taliban. We leave a small force to support the government, but all or most of our efforts should be in the war of ideas, the ideological war. We could stay in Afghanistan 60 years without winning the war of ideas. We're not doing much. We, we cannot withdraw. The reason for us to withdraw is if we win the war of ideas, meaning the Afghan society is able to defend itself against the Taliban. So if you ask me theoretically, of course I'm with the withdrawal because we have other stuff to do elsewhere. We have jihadi campaigns in many other places. <laughs> but if you ask me in the present circumstances where we have not been able to achieve those goals, should we withdraw? That would be suicide. It would be like you are telling me we liberated Normandy on June 6th. Okay, this was done and we need to withdraw in Ju on July 14 or 15 because we achieved that. What about Nazi Germany? So no, we cannot withdraw if we do not achieve the goal. Unfortunately, we weren't able. So I would have advised three administrations, the four administrations to act differently. They did not act differently. So if we are now in June, July, August of 2021, and you ask me this question, should we withdraw? I would say this would be a threat to US national security. Please change policy, not withdraw. Once you change policy, you achieve the goals, then please withdraw. Well, once you get to the place where you think it is time to withdraw, how could you have prevented a Taliban takeover? This is crazy. I'm using those terms rarely. How can we not notice that there are 70, 75,000 Taliban in the country? I mean, this is crazy. That. Second, when they start moving nationwide, I mean, when ISIS move, I don't know, a jeep or a van, mm -hmm. you have all the satellites, you have the whole American power going after them, the drones will be, will be going. 70,000 Taliban seizing town after town, city after mm -hmm. city. There is something utterly wrong. And I tweeted already over the past 24 hours uh, that in my assessment, after I've observed what happened, after obviously I got information from sources, from NGOs, from politicians, and this data is growing. This was not an invasion by the Taliban. This was a coup. This was a coup d'etat against the government of Afghanistan because what happened was a crumbling of the army, a crumbling of bureaucracies. And we just got this morning information, additional information, that huge amount of money were spent since the end of 2018, but intensely over the past, four to five months to governors, to officials, to bureaucrats, to officers. That explains the collapse. If no orders are given from the Ministry of Defense to a unit to fight, I mean, when there were tribes and militias, they were fighting longer. Now they were, they were an army, a much larger army. How can that happen? So it seems to me, and I'm still putting the, the pieces of the puzzle together, that there was a plan by the Taliban, obviously, backed by outside forces in the region and money to mellow and minimize and undermine the government. And there, was there were negotiations between the Biden administration and the Taliban, excuse the term, but I think that force fooled our administration. Yeah. They told them something and then they did something else, which explains why the president, the national security advisor, everybody is, they don't know. They told us something, but something else happened. So let's talk further about this negotiation between the Biden administration and the Taliban, because I think that's very, very interesting and it's not talked about often enough. Um, from the outside, it looks like the only the only element that had a, a plan was the Taliban. They had a plan. 
it didn't seem like the Afghan military or the president knew what the heck was going on. They had to flee, you know, right away. It didn't look like the Biden administration had any idea what they're doing. I mean, everyone's scrambling at the airport. No one can forget these images that we saw coming off of the tarmac. But, you know, what what was said to the Afghan president? Was there some sort of, of message for him to leave? Why did he leave so abruptly? Why did the military give up so quickly? Why were the weapons just left there? $83 billion worth of high-tech weaponry just handed on a silver platter to the Taliban, a terror organization. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Um, what what were I mean, fill in some of these these little gaps that I left in, in this conversation to say, you know, what was talked about behind closed doors that allowed this this crazy, crazy storm to come about? It's wonderful that you are giving me the opportunity to share with your audience some of the most recent analysis have developed about what really happened. And you know, in the debate now, the administration and their camp are, uh, are attacking the previous administration. So it's not us. It's the Trump administration that had negotiations in Doha, Qatar, with the Taliban. They signed, they inked a, uh, an agreement. And we just came in May and decided that we need to implement that agreement. That's politics. I am going to explain the difference between the Trump-Taliban deal or the Trump deal with the Taliban and the Biden deal with the Taliban. And these are two different deals. So the previous administration, and I was opposed to that. I mean, even the Trump administration efforts to send an envoy, who by the way, was adopted by the, by the Biden administration. That's very telling. When they went to Doha and discussed, this is what they come up with. They said, yes, we will begin a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Listen well. When the Taliban will disarm, let go of their militia, let go of their militia, not we're going to give them weapons. And then they would negotiate with the uh, uh, government of Kabul. They would form a national unity government as a political party. And then we begin the withdrawal. And even that withdrawal was conceived to be different, not a nationwide overnight withdrawal. It was province after province after making sure that the militias are disarmed, that the army is in. That's a different plan. And I was very critical of this plan for other reasons, but yes, it was a plan that could have been implemented. That should have been the plan. Then this administration comes in January, and then they brought in with them the diplomats who engaged in the first, uh, Mr. Khalilzad, Ambassador Khalilzad. And then they renegotiated with the Taliban with the help of Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood elite in, 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 uh, in Qatar, in Doha. And this is what they come up with, that they're not going to ask the Taliban to disarm. Wait a minute. So that's a huge change. We're not going to ask the Taliban to disarm, but we want them still to negotiate with the government and find with the government some sort of uh, compromise over the militia and the army. So it was not, it was bad, but not as bad as what happened in reality. So what may have happened, and I cannot confirm it, is that the government of Qatar and the Taliban guaranteed to the Biden administration that, okay, everything will happen by the book, by what we have agreed upon. The Taliban and the government of Afghanistan will get together and they will formulate a plan. And then the Taliban suddenly started to move in different direction and attack, make uh, several attacks. Then something strange happened over the previous weeks. Officials from the Biden administration, out of nowhere, 
started to say, oh, this province will fall in, in, in three weeks. Why are you telling the Taliban that this province will fall in three weeks if this is an invitation for the Taliban to move in? Mm -hmm. Then they left Bagram base, Bagram air base. When you leave Bagram air base, this is a signal, a direct signal that we're not going to provide air cover for the Afghan army and on and on and on. And then the last statement was, oh, we think that uh, Kabul will fall in three weeks, maybe in two weeks. These were statements, signals coming from the administration, I am not sure what level of the administration, I'm not sure even if the president, president knew about that. So that's something very fishy in the situation. So the Taliban were kind of guided by forces that I'm not very clear about to actually do uh, this blitzkrieg on, on the government. And as I said earlier, and I'll conclude here, some hand was funding, some hand was funding bureaucrats inside the government. So when the president of Afghanistan and the governors and the units, the members were asking, are we gonna be fighting? Uh, will there be air cover? The question, the answers were no, 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 you're gonna have to leave. So there was a plan by the Taliban and Taliban protectors to promise Biden something did not deliver. And once it happened, then the Biden administration was bogged down with one issue, how to get the Americans out. So everything else was left, was dropped. So now the whole thing is what's happening in the uh, Kabul International Airport. It's it's crazy to listen to this because it just seems um, so irresponsible. Like you said, the you know there's a blame game going on. You hear uh, President Biden who was missing in action for a few days. Uh, the same thing for Vice President Kamala Harris. And then when they did come, uh, well, President Biden came to a, a press conference. He didn't take any questions. Uh, and uh, he, he blamed basically the, the Trump administration. Uh, what you outline is contingencies, right? Concessions. If the, the Trump administration would see that they're not getting a deal, there's no two-sided negotiations, um, you know, they would obviously deal differently. And anyway, the, the Biden administration has never been shy to do a 180 on a Trump era uh, policy. Look at the Iran deal, for example, and and the the Paris Climate Accord, and so many other things. But um, you know, the 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 point here being that uh, there's no accountability. And uh, going forward, I think um, you know, we, you you look at the way that the United States looked at 9/11, right? It was as if it was the end of the world, and you had a bunch of terrorists working out of a cave. Uh, then you saw ISIS, where maximum 50, 60, 80 thousand maximum fighters at its peak. Uh, and everyone was going crazy. And they had two cities, one in Syria, one in Iraq. Now you're talking about a terror organization being, you know, having a whole country at its disposal, a legitimate army, uh, you know, weapons, I mean, galore, uh, an entire population that will have to fold under this flag. Um, can you walk us through what this will mean? What are the ramifications for terror, the war on terror, na American national security, the region's stability, and what will this mean for the various jihadi groups? Will they come together? Will they fight each other? How will it look? By historical comparison, everybody in the world in uh, 1918 thought that the mother of all wars, they call it the greater war, the bigger war, has ended. This is the mother of all wars. And guess what? A couple of decades later, what happened? World War II, which was 10 times bigger, and it ended with nukes. So unfortunately, we are heading towards a comparable situation. The 9-11 war, which peaked with ISIS, 
was one very devastating war for Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, parts of Iran as well, and, uh, and the region in general, and for many Western democracies, which were targeted by these jihadists, I mean, for 20 years. And we are heading now for the second larger, bigger jihadi war, because this one is going to have multi-forces. It's going to have, a, as you just said, a super ISIS, super Al-Qaeda in control of Afghanistan with so much weapons, with so much resources they're going to be able to control at this point in time. And they are protected regionally because on the one hand, you have China, no interest in moving in. Russia, no interest in moving in. And since you are one of the experts on Iran, Iran will handle the situation. So now you have a plateau starting from China to the Mediterranean Sea, completely under the control of terrorists, jihadis, Khomeinis, etc. Now, who will that threaten? First of all, it's going to threaten the peoples under these regimes, the Afghani people, the Iranian people, the Iraqis, Syrian, Lebanon, etc. Second, the other partners in the region, Israel will be under greater uh, threat. The Arab coalition, already the Taliban are not wasting time. Their spokesperson are, persons are threatening the Emirates and Saudi and Bahrain and Egypt and everybody. I mean, all our real allies in the region, the Arab allies, are now under threat and they're not happy. I've been on Arab TV, as you know, for many years, but now for many days dealing with the issue. They are under shock. What did you do? They're telling me as Americans, I mean, you just give Afghanistan to the maximum uber jihadi force in the world. But beyond that, beyond that, there is no guarantee that the Taliban, that Islamic Emirates will not obtain weapons that are more advanced because they will have the money. There is no guarantee that next door in Pakistan or Iran or elsewhere, there will be those tactical toys that are very dangerous heading towards Afghanistan. We have no access now. We just stopped ourselves. So Europe is under threat. And obviously the United States is under threat. Don't even ask me about the size of the jihadi networks at this point in time when they have a country like Afghanistan with experience for 20 years in warfare uh, feeding them. So I would say the situation now is going to be tenfold more dangerous than when it was at the eve of September the 11th, 2001. Um, who's funding the Taliban? I mean, we, we, my next question will be about these various countries and, and what kind of support they're going to give. But who is pulling the puppet strings right now? Now, whose funding is different from who's in control of the political operation? And we could answer the best we can. Who's funding? The Taliban are getting weapons and funding from all the anti-American actors in the region, but to a limited fashion. For example, we know that Iran sent some weapons to the Taliban to kill American and NATO soldiers. So they're not sending their best weapons, but they're sending enough weapons, and they did. Will they continue to send? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, China, obviously, uh, found ways to send uh, technologies to the Taliban through North Korea and, and others. You know, next door you have Pakistan. So the entire Taliban network in Pakistan is basically the extension of the Taliban in Afghanistan with their friends in the armed forces. Uh, that is not to say that actually the Pakistani government is sending directly weapons, but uh, Pakistan is filled with jihadis who are in support of the Taliban. But there is one country which openly since 2001 hosted the leadership of the Taliban, supported them in the media, politically, and now was 
well as of last year was moderating their negotiations with the United States and others that's none other than Qatar Doha so that doesn't need even investigation it's on TV it's on Al Jazeera so if you combine all of that you would say that one country will have a lot of influence with the Taliban and influence means not just political advice it means logistical support as well is Qatar and and uh, therefore the Muslim Brotherhood and that's why by the way Lisa let me say this so we haven't said before those Taliban are a little bit changed than the old Taliban they are more sophisticated they are more disciplined you can see the message coming from Doha I mean it's very very clear to tell them oh at this point in time you you have to say this that the women will be um, more respected but within the limits of the ideology that Americans can leave that we're not going to cause any harm if everybody goes under our ideology this is the messaging of the muslim brotherhood that's how they talk if you compare notes mm -hmm. so here you go you have that uh, that 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 reality which we are going to be witnessing for a long period of time uh what's going to happen with um iraq uh, are are we going to be pushed out of Iraq as well, and then we'll hand it over to Iran, and then therefore, you know, you'll have the real Islamic State, right? That's going to span from uh, Iran to Kabul to Baghdad. Um, what's going to happen there? We've seen this before. We've we've seen that movie before, as we say. So we were in Iraq for a number of years, initial wave under the Bush administration. The Obama administration on day one sent that, on uh, year one, sent the letter to Ayatollah Khamenei telling him we want to engage. Remember that major letter that was sent actually in the same month where the Green Movement and the uh, Iranian youth on the ground were, were uprising. And nevertheless, it didn't do anything. The Obama administration did not budge, did not move. And that is something that tells me that the Biden administration, despite everything's happening, in Afghanistan today, they have a plan, they want to go with it because there are forces behind them that needs that plan to be done. So in 2011, at the end of 2011, despite all the warnings coming from the military and the Pentagon and the intelligence community, President Obama, former President Obama ordered the withdrawal and the last Humvee left at the end of 2011. We all remember this, we lived it. So what happened months and years after? Well, the Iran militia came in and took over. So when you leave a country before you complete your job, the militias are gonna come in. And that's what I'm expecting that has happened already in Afghanistan. We leave, the Taliban comes in. We leave Iraq for the second time now because we went in in 2014, uh, end of 2014 when ISIS uh, came and then we had to redeploy. So now we are in a situation whereby the Iraqi under Iran influenced government is gonna tell us now, thank you. We can handle. And what's going to happen, we will be replaced by the Iran-controlled militias. Exactly. I mean, what's what's the, the takeaway here? Um, you know, is this, is this not a place for Americans to put boots on the ground in order to nation build or to really, um, can we have this war of ideas or to defeat an ideology when we send troops to another country? I mean, what's the takeaway? The troops' goal is not to win a war of ideas. The troops' goal are to keep a space of liberty where you can win the war of ideas. Because if you don't have freedom, how can you win the war of ideas? So when allies in the US liberated Western Europe, right? We occupied part of Germany. The enemy were the Nazis. 
So we were there not to actually fight any fight on the streets of Germany. We were there to, in, to, to ensure that there is no return of the Nazis. And there were for a few years attempts. And then the second phase was to deter the Soviets from invading Western Germany. So the goal of a force that exists there is to assist the local government or the local organization to maintain a space for freedom. The real army that moves in are educators, are NGOs, are people who can connect with society. Well, for Germany, it was very simple. The German people by itself was educated enough. So once you remove the Nazis, it became a democracy, it became one of the greatest democracies after the United States. In Afghanistan, we unfortunately did not use 20 precious years because we've cleared our, our army, our forces cleared everything, but unfortunately we lost the war of ideas because we did not wage it. We did not wage it because there were eight years of President Obama's administration who told us, do not touch the curriculum, don't do this, this is Islamophobia, etc." So we were still spending blood and treasure for nothing in return to build up. So now to answer your question, it is going to be very difficult for the public to understand what you and I are discussing in my point here. This is going to cause us probably another 20 years. What we have done, what our administration has done over the past, I don't know, one week is going to cost us 20 years because the Taliban are going to radicalize. They're going to create the mother of all threats out of Afghanistan. With this administration or the next administration, I don't care. There will be a return of the United States and NATO. This is absolutely clear because we cannot accept a threat that would start in Afghanistan all the way to the Mediterranean and then hit us. So all what we've done now was to erase 20 years and we'll have to pay the price. The invoice will be another 20 years, unfortunately. It's so, so sad. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about the influence of, of a few different countries. Um, first, uh, China has already expressed interest in talking to the Taliban. Um, what will their exact role be and what's the fear of these two elements joining forces? China talking about the Taliban is realism. This is not long term. The Taliban are not another communist party. At the end of the day, they, they are on a collision for, uh, course, but China and the Taliban, especially that once the Taliban would control Afghanistan the way they want, they're going to start to look outside. They're going to look into Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, all the other stands. Mm -hmm. And they're going to start looking toward Xinjiang inside China, where you have a Muslim minority. But that's far down the line. At this point in time, China is proposing to the Taliban, I can flood you with cash. And the Taliban could be the jihadist of all jihadists. Once you say cash and money and you know uh, material support and project, so there will be between the Taliban and China, a moment of cooperation, like the one between the National Socialists of Germany, Hitler and Stalin. You know, they devoured Poland and they were together for a while and then one jumped on the other uh, later on. Now, China's real ally in Afghanistan, beyond the Taliban, so in, in a few years, is going to be none than Iran. Iran and China are more on a natural path of alliance because Iran is heading towards trying to impose its own influence in the northern part, northern and central part of Afghanistan. There is a large minority known as the Hazara, who are Shia majority, where Iran is now introducing militias like Hezbollah in Lebanon and like 
uh, other militias in Iraq. And one of these organizations called the Fatimiyun, and the Fatimiyun were deployed in, in, in Syria. So Iran is telling, and I'm, I know you're going to ask me that question, but Iran is telling China, wait a minute, I'll be back to some parts of Afghanistan. I will build that link with you. So China now do business with the Taliban. Once we have that link, geographical link, then China and Iran will be the, the masters of, of the scene. How about Russia? I, I didn't hear you. Oh, I said, how about Russia? What do you think Russia's next move will be regarding the Afghanistan? The, the deep Russia is one thing and the diplomatic Russia is something else. So Russia issued a statement a couple of days ago and I tweeted back saying, oh, we have no problem with the Taliban. We have an arrangement. There'll be, you know, mutual respected uh, uh, relations over the borders. That is the diplomatic Russia. Deep down, Russia is very concerned about the Taliban. They don't want to begin anything. So they've done two things. Number one, they sent units to Kazakhstan and I think Tajikistan and the other republics, Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. And those troops are now training, you could see it um, online, with the local forces. This is, a, this is the real message to the Taliban. Okay, you took Afghanistan. We have no problem with you. But do not cross the red line coming into Central Asia. Because if you are in Central Asia, you are coming at me, Russia. Uh, especially as uh, you know, as of Kazakhstan and and beyond. So the Russians wants to have cordial relations with the Taliban, but they know at the end of the day the Taliban could cause a great danger against Russia. You know, um, what do you think? I, I know we always talk, and, and it seems like our topics uh, are always you know doomsday and all this negativity. But I know you're also an optimist at heart in some ways, like I am. What do, you, do you think the region will move closer to the sentiment of the Abraham Accords, for example, because, you know, Saudi Arabia and some of the other Arab nations that have not yet become signatory to the Abraham Accords can look at this and say, oh, my gosh, we're in a much worse position right now, because instead of diminishing the Iranian threat, instead of diminishing the terror threat, it's on the march. And now there's an entire country that is dedicated to terrorism. Uh, could we perhaps see either with or without the the Biden administration, because we haven't seen any enthusiasm coming out of them for the Abraham Accords, can we see whether it's formally in in the in the shape of the of another you know sign on to the Abraham Accords or maybe informally? Can we see these countries moving closer to Israel and therefore you know creating this more moderate uh, force in the Middle East that includes uh, Israel with these moderate Arab nations? Absolutely, you are raising a very important point, Lisa. Um, if you look at the region, the MENA, Middle East, North Africa region as a whole, uh, from a very, very high altitude, you would see the formation of two Middle East. It's like Europe, Western Europe and Eastern Europe during the Cold War. So now you have the jihadi Middle East or the radical Middle East stretches from now Afghanistan down to Iran, to Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah and Lebanon. Gaza is part of that. And whatever influence that the Ikhwan or Muslim Brotherhood have, either in Qatar or, or in Turkey or in peace of Libya. So all of that is one zone. The other zone are the people of the Middle East who believe in peace, in cooperation, in freedom, in moderation. And that includes basically, obviously, Israel at the center, you know, that goes even to democracy and liberalism. 
But you have now the Abraham Accord that was able to bring together members of the Arab coalition, which is really strategically outside Israel, the real bloc that is an ally, strategic ally with the United States and the West. It includes Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, parts of Libya, Jordan, obviously now Sudan and Morocco have joined the uh, Abraham Accord. So to answer your question, yes, when you have these kind of threats coming together, these dark clouds gathering, then you're gonna have two movements. Number one, more countries will join the Abraham Accords with or without the US administrations, Biden or after Biden, that is not going to be a factor. This is for their own interest. And second, it's gonna also compel Israel to work more with regional allies. Look what's happening between Israel and the UAE, unbelievable. I mean, these countries are working together today as if they were what, uh, you know, uh, England and, 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 and the United States for the last 100 years, or Britain and the United States. So, yes, I agree with you. This is gonna come. Now, a major player who could change the speed with which the Abraham Accord or alliance would widen is going to be Saudi Arabia. So if you ask me, the Saudi leadership, the reformist Saudi leadership of Mohammed bin Salman, which is hated by the Brotherhood and by all the jihadists because he's reforming all what they are you know, trying to do, he's changing it. Uh, I think Saudi Arabia will be slowly and surely moving to integrate the Abraham Accord. It's really the force behind the Arab side of the Abraham Accord. They have chosen to stay outside the signing process Till every other Arab country is in, and they will come in the end. Now they, they may go faster. Yeah, they, it seems like they're the godfather here. Um, you know, the Abraham Accords seem to be between the people of the Middle East, right? So uh, we talked even about a, a potential Cyrus Accords with the people of Iran and, and Israel, because obviously the people are the ones who want to connect with one another. But speaking of people, and you mentioned the Afghan women and children, and I know their their faces and, and, and their plight is really at the forefront of, of all of this. Is there a chance for the Afghan people to mobilize against the Taliban? And I know it sounds naive in a certain way because they had the influence in the 90s. And then even in the last 20 years, it's not as though they were rid of the threat of the Taliban. But do you think there's a breaking point where the people, like they look at the Iranian people and say, we don't want 42 years, like the way that the people in Egypt said, we didn't come to Tahrir Square for this. We're going to come out again. Is there a chance for the people of Afghanistan to stand up to this? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, since yesterday, if you look at social media, it's not really omnipresent in the mainstream media, except in a few parts of it. The, the embryos, the genesis of the Afghan general resistance against the Taliban has already started. This is the fight, it's like in the Terminator movie against the machines. It has started in small places. In the Panjshir Valley, for example, you have now a gathering of resistance against the Taliban. They took a few positions. The balance of power is, is, is just, uh, you know, to the advantage of the Taliban. But these are youth. Who, some of whom were born uh, in 2001, so they are barely 20, 21 year old. They have not known the jihadi Taliban. They have not lived under them. And suddenly this medieval force come and is going to take one liberty after another liberty. And for women, it's gonna be even worse because boys and men and young men can, you know, can, can get by this. Women, what can they do? There are women and the Taliban will go after them. But 
if the Taliban goes after the women of civil society, men and males of civil society are going to rise. It, it's, it's going to create a psychological shock. So there will be a resistance against the Taliban. Some parts of Afghanistan are prone to that resistance, namely the northern part of Afghanistan, the very northern part, northern alliance. The Shia parts of Afghanistan, the Hazara, also will rise against them. And we will see what happened in the Pashtun areas at the end of the day. That would depend also on how the international community will, will behave. Now it's very difficult to see how the United States is going to help civil society after it had allowed Taliban to invade them. It's a drama. It's a tragedy, actually. So we'll see in the weeks, months, but certainly after the next uh, midterm elections, because there may be a different push from Congress, and we'll see in 2024. Yeah, this is why I, you're one of my favorite, if not my favorite guests, is because you always anticipate my questions because we flow so nicely together in this nice conversation. My next question to you was exactly that. What will be, um, I, I want to ask you a two-part question, I, and I want you to maybe uh, focus more on the second part, but what will be the reaction or action of the Biden administration to this debacle? Um, obviously, I know they're backing away from it because they don't want uh, to take the, you know, don't, don't have the accountability here to say that this was on them. Um, but how, how will this change? What, what will their policy be uh, with Afghanistan? A. B. And more importantly, um, they didn't listen to you before. They didn't listen to you then. But if you had the ear of the Biden administration and perhaps the next administration on how to deal with Afghanistan, how to climb out of this mess, what would you say to them? Let me start with section one, uh, which is um, the state of the administration at this point in time. Let's look at realities. I'm going to be as raw as possible in my observation, because we are at an age where we have to share everything with, with the public. It's a smart public. Everybody is online. We know more than 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I think that there are elements in the Democratic Party, authentic elements of the Democratic Party, who are really for women and minorities. And they practice this here in the United States, and they give their hearts to this. Seeing these images and videos and pictures and social media coming from Afghanistan, these elements are living a crisis, an intellectual crisis. I mean, when they see women asking the Marines or the U.S. soldier in, in Afghanistan, Taliban are going to crush us. What are you going to do to help us? All these NGOs, you know, there are hundreds of NGOs from Afghanistan who are contacting the NGOs here. What have you done? Why is your progressive administration do this and let, let, let us go under these medieval forces? So there is a um, sort of a psychological shock that is happening now coming from elements within the Democratic Party. And the Biden administration is not immune to this. I mean, they will have to, to react to this. Now, the Biden White House has a plan. And that plan, as you know, is the Iran deal. They, they want to sign it no matter what. And then they added to the Iran deal, the Taliban deal, because both of these deals actually complete each other. So it's going to be a struggle in the Biden administration between that wing of free mind people who are progressive and the administration, because the administration is going to say, I will do everything I can to handle. What can you, what can you handle? You've just given Afghanistan to the Taliban. So if now let me go to the second section. If I had the ear of President Biden, 
which I don't have obviously right now, I would, I would strongly advise that he would, should address the American public and should address the Afghan public because we now have on our hands a crisis with the Afghan people, with all the peoples of the Middle East. The regimes with whom the Biden administration is cutting deals, Iran and Afghanistan and Hezbollah and Hamas and God knows what, they don't like America. They don't like progressive ideas. They don't like the liberals. They kill the gays. They, you know, they uh, suppress women. So the real allies of the United States are the peoples of the Middle East. And we have done something very bad to the people of the Middle East. So a Biden administration needs to do what Gorbachev has done in the Soviet Union. It's called glasnost and perestroika, restructuring U.S. foreign policy. Number one, he has to regather some sort of center of gravity. There should be a union between Republicans and Democrats. We need to save the world from what is happening, and then we're going to save our own national security. So if there is a U-turn in, in, in American foreign policy, even a Biden administration that I oppose on so many grounds can do a lot, can do immensely to help the people of Afghanistan. Just by addressing the Taliban and then creating an international coalition to save the peoples of Afghanistan, half of the situation right now will be reversed by the Afghanis themselves. They don't want our soldiers and our Marines, but they want our words. It's like, remember when uh, President Obama, you know, in 2009, in June of 2009, the youth of Iran were calling on him. They didn't call on tanks or on planes. They said, stand up with us. Say that you are with us and we will do the rest on the ground. The Pazdaran officers were, would flee. They were afraid that America would do something and President Obama actually did the opposite. So now it's really, a, you know, the honor of this administration and the mission of the United States is to stand by the people of Afghanistan. Best place to end. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Dr. Walid Ferris, thank you so much for joining us. It's obviously all about the people, and, and we're going to have you come back very, very soon to touch upon Lebanon, because unfortunately, we didn't have enough time today. I think we could have had a whole other hour uh, just on Afghanistan. But thank you for your insight, for so clearly and uh, concisely um, giving us a summary of what's going on there and really unpacking so much information for us. I will link to Dr. Ferris's article after the show so you can all read that as well. And for those of you who would like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari and to sign up for our daily top 10 newsletter, go to foreigndesknews.com. See you all next week.